What's up, Kyle? My name's Jake, and I'm currently sitting 65 feet above the Pacific Ocean in Tower Zero above the Huntington Beach Pier, where I am a lifeguard. It's about 6.45 in the morning, and we've got a good combo swell running, and I'm listening to your most recent episode with Amy Baldwin and Simon Rex. I love listening to the show. I've been listening to it for about a year now, and keep me company as I drive up and down the beach. And it's been really cool to listen to some of the people's perspectives who I would have never thought were out there. Um, listening to your show has definitely given me a seat at a table that I would no- never otherwise have been able to sit at. So it's been super cool. Love your show, man. Keep up the good work. And I hope to see you next time I'm up in Santa Cruz. What's up, Jake? Thanks for sending that in, man. I have been to Huntington Beach many times and have been surfing while looking out at that tower that you were standing in. I used to go down to Huntington to do NSSA surf competitions, and there was uh, a big one there called Regionals that uh, you had to qualify to to then get to Nationals where uh, you would surf lower trestles down in San Clemente, which was always the highlight of our year growing up. doing surf contests because lowers is a really good wave and the only problem is that there's usually 150 guys out that surf it so having the chance to be 15 years old and uh surf it with three other kids was always special never did that well in uh nationals but my buddy nat young who i've had on the podcast ended up winning it uh one year which was uh quite the uh the moment of pride for our little surf town in santa cruz anyway if anyone if uh any of you guys want to send me a little voice memo you can record it on your phone and email it to info at kyle.surf before i get into this podcast a uh, couple housekeeping notes the tickets to the motherfucker awards are officially on sale you can go to motherfuckerawards.com and reserve your ticket before it sells out I recommend recommend doing it quickly because we're only selling a few hundred and it sold out quickly last year. So I anticipate that it will um, be a similar situation this year. Another thing is, uh, I've mentioned it before, but I'm doing a weekly email where once a week I send a short story that uh, I wrote. It's in, in an effort to... Um, just get better at creative writing. And people have been digging it. I've been getting a lot of good feedback from people um, on my website, kyle.surf. And uh, if that's something you're interested in, you can go to kyle.surf and sign up for the newsletter. I'm going to read you uh, an example of one of these short stories right now, and then we'll get into the podcast. So this one is called uh, Be Polite or Die by me. Uh, I'm writing in a coffee shop, and the woman sitting next to me is on her laptop, chewing kale salad loudly. She is an attractive brunette, wearing nerdy glasses, and looks to be about 30. But all I can focus on is the kale crunching between her teeth. Am I the only one noticing this? I can't be. She's now devouring a cacao protein bar with the strength and decibel of a lawnmower. Not even the barista's coffee blender can compete. If someone were to run into the coffee shop screaming, Tsunami! No one would be able to heed the warning. This woman is a risk to public safety, and she needs to be contained. I can see only two options. One, I politely ask her to chew less loudly. 
Or two, I poison her cappuccino. I hate awkward conversations, so it will need to be the latter. If only she learned some basic manners, we could have avoided this whole murder-in-a-coffee-shop situation. I would give myself a C-plus in good manners. I look people in the eye, but rarely remember their name after being introduced. My mom fought like a teamster to teach me etiquette. It wasn't easy. She was up against a surf culture that silently view acts of politeness as, quote, giving in to the man. Over time, her fortitude prevailed. I can now offer a firm handshake and chew with my mouth closed. The utility of basic manners, basic manners is to reduce distraction. Maybe the woman sitting next to me is a brilliant engineer, working tirelessly to bring solar power to scale. Maybe she owns a cat named Khaleesi. But I have decided to focus my attention like a sniper on the way she smacks her lips while chewing. Maybe I shouldn't be so callous. After all, I'm no Queen Elizabeth. I still slouch. Come to think of it, I have been slouching for the entirety of this vindictive takedown. My victim, however, has been chewing with great posture. Have I been annoying her? Have I been reading out loud? Why does my coffee taste like cyanide? Once again, that's an example of these little short stories that I write and uh, deliver to your inbox. So if you're interested, head over to my website, kyle.surf. Big thank you to Santa Cruz Medicinals for sponsoring each and every one of these podcasts. Santa Cruz Medicinals makes potent CBD products. They make a CBD nootropic that I've been using. They make CBD MCT oil that I put in my morning brew. Uh, and probably my favorite product of theirs is the CBD coconut oil that uh, is great for massages and um, just rub lathering all over yourself. So you can get shiny and beautiful. And if you want 10% off, you can go to Kyle. You can uh, go to scmedicinals.com and uh, type in the code name Kyle10 to get 10% off. Uh, thank you, Santa Cruz Medicinals. Go over, support them, get some, uh, get a discount. Kyle10, all caps. Thank you also to everyone who donates on Patreon. This is, um, for the most part, a listener-supported podcast, and I'd really appreciate everyone who um, just donates even just a few bucks a month. It means the world to me. So thank you, thank you to everyone who does that. This episode of the podcast is with Kyle Kingsbury. He is a podcast alumni of, uh, is that the right way to put it? He's been on this show before. That's a more simple way to do it. Uh, he is a retired American professional mixed martial artist, a professional competitor from 2006 to 2014. Kingsbury also formally competed for King of the Cage and was a cast member of Spike's T Spike TV's The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, he is now the director of human optimization at Onnit, but more than that, he's just a really great thinker. He's a curious guy who hosts his own podcast and has some of the most brilliant health and uh, fitness experts in the world on, um, and he's just constantly looking to grow and expand his mind. Um, and he's, you know, he he. I, I really love people that. Um, move through the world with a primary attitude of curiosity. And Kyle Kingsbury uh, definitely does that. 
and he loves psychedelics, and so do I, so we jived on that. And I also, this was a co-release episode, so he kind of interviewed me for a little while, um, then I interviewed him, but um, like most great conversations, hopefully it didn't feel too interviewee, and you guys will just be cruising along for the ride. Final note, before I get this going, um, we talked a lot about animal agriculture, and we we went through a lot, but... Um, one thing I, I noticed after we recorded was that we kind of skipped over this point about um, methane. And, you know, it's a lot of people think that methane from cow farts is um, a really big issue with climate. And it's it's very debatable um, for a couple reasons that we didn't mention in the podcast. One is that methane will go into the atmosphere, but only for about a decade before it's broken down. Whereas CO2, um, when it's released into the atmosphere, will stay there for thousands of years. Um, Another is that I think that if you're going to make the argument of um, against industrial farm, uh, industrial agriculture and factory farming, um, it's much sturdier ground to stand on to just talk about the pollution that results from um, all the cow shit and fertilizer uh, and all the transportation of these animals, um, rather than talking about the catchy kind of cow fart, cow burp thing. Because I've been, since the podcast, I looked at about, it looked at three or four articles that all say different things about the impact of it. And at the end of the day, um, you know, the argument for uh, keeping our planet alive and well, I think, is the <laughs> it's it's an important argument for us to make, but it's also important for us to to stand on um, really solid ground when we're we're making these arguments. Um, it's kind of similar to like the when people make when people talk about plastic pollution and then they mention the plastic island out in the middle of the ocean, which doesn't exist. It just it, it kind of discredits something that is a big issue and can be talked about um, in other ways. So, hey, that's if, if you care about the planet and you're uh, trying to move policy forward that uh, reflects that care, I think that uh, that's all our responsibility to do our research and, um, and talk about it intelligently. And uh, I just, I fucking love these conversations. I, when I talk to Kyle, um, I leave the podcast energized, which is always a good feeling. So I recommend you go over and check out his podcast. I will link to it in the show notes below. And without further ado, please welcome to the show, Kyle Kingsbury. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. How far is the flight from uh, Austin? It's, it's like three and a half or three, something like that. It's not terrible. I mean, I was listening to the podcast the whole way and drinking coffee, but yeah, I'm not. I'm used to sleeping in a little bit longer than that. I think most people are. Yeah, traveling like is just training. Yeah, <laughs> you might be the only exception. I'm a sleeper, man. I like my sleep. I love it. Well, last time you were here, uh, we did the dinner in the backyard. 
which was fucking incredible. Let's talk about that. Sure. That was fun. So I, what was, um, I forget. I think we were, we were going to come through town and you were like, the next time you come to town, you got to let me know. And I was like, I think after it was after you were in Austin. Yes. And, uh, and I was telling you like, you were naming the people that are all in this town. And I was like, dude, I got to meet Bruce Lipton. I got to meet uh, or, yeah, or Bruce, Bruce Damer. Bruce Damer. Bruce Damer. Jim uh, Fadiman. Fadiman. Wallace J. Nichols, Wallace author of Blue Nichols. Mind. Yep. And then finally got him on the podcast. Uh, obviously, Chris Ryan wanted to meet him. Yep. So you put together the Who's Who dinner. Kaj Larson we had uh-huh. there. Navy SEAL. We had uh, Ben Horton, Nat Geo photographer. Mm-hmm. All these guys that um, I've either known from growing up in Santa Cruz or have become friends with through the podcast and you said okay i'm going to be in santa cruz in you know about a month month and a half and that was the inception of uh what we then called the curated feast which was uh a dinner in my backyard that was you know we had like five course five course meal uh all locally forged food from the santa cruz mountains and a food historian who then came in and would uh, tell myths and poems about each course as it came out, and it ended up just kind of kind of continuing to build, where like more and more people ended up coming on. I'm like, man, this is gonna be a, some really interesting cats at this dinner. But it but it initially happened because you said you were coming to Santa Cruz. Yeah, that was thank you, brother. Like that was that exceeded any and all expectations. I would have been happy with like a dinner with you and any one of those guests. Yeah, but, like all of them at the same time was just it was awesome. And yeah. I've been able to connect with a lot of them since then. Yeah. You yeah had, we had, you we had, had Bruce on. I went to his spot uh, down the road. He actually lives like walking distance from my dad in Boulder Creek. No way. I was like, no shit. He's right here. I've been driven by his house constantly, like many, many times. And um, I'm still in talks with Fatim and haven't been, uh, we, we, I think his wife got ill, so we weren't able to connect uh, the last time, but. Yeah, he's pretty lim- limited in the mm-hmm. interviews he's yeah. given these days. Um, but I saw him just the other night at um, the premiere of Fantastic Fungi. Let's talk about that. So great. Um, and yeah, he's still kicking, still... Uh, so you you got to see that here in Santa Cruz. You can follow them on Instagram. I think it's just at Fantastic Fungi. I don't think it's at Fantastic Fungi movie or any of that, but I'll, I'll check. And... Um, we got to see this in Sedona. So a guy who is a part of Fit for Service, Craig Nuremberg, who I told you recently was a part of the bong, was a part of the team that helped fund alongside Tim Ferriss, the $17 million psychedelic studies wing at Johns Hopkins. He was in uh, Telluride at the Mushroom Film Festival or the Mushroom Festival. And so they showed this there and he became buddies with Louis Schwartz and asked him if he could premiere it to us. So Louis Schwartz is the director of Fantastic Fungi. Yeah, and you can and you'll see like they shot they have clips on their Instagram. So it's like super easy to like see the trailer, see what we're talking about. But I've I have very few documentaries catch me like that. It was visually stunning. And obviously I'm a fucking huge fan of mushrooms of all kinds, but like it was stunning and it had everybody like the who's who, Dennis McKenna, Paul Stamets, Roland Griffiths, the head of research at Johns Hopkins, Michael Pollan, like you name it. If they have anything to do with mushrooms in the game right now, they're in the movie. Like yeah. it just, it was, it was amazing. It's a really well told story too. I felt like they hit everything from the therapeutic aspects of psychedelics to the health benefits of mushrooms to just the gravity of um, how we came from mushrooms. 
and how we wouldn't be here without mushrooms. Mushrooms um, are what they say. Mushrooms are like the digestive tract of the earth. And without them, plant matter would take over. And they they had these time-lapse shots of fungus eating the bodies of a mouse or fungus just completely changing the landscape in ways that like I intellectually knew because I've been in the mushroom game for a little while, but never had been able to see. Yeah, I, I walked away from that like, we live on a spaceship and there are <laughs> aliens that exist here. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was so beautiful, and like yeah, you were saying uh, that Schwartz is the guy that's known for time lapse, mm-hmm. and um, there's some beautiful time lapse of different mushrooms. But I remembered watching. I was I was telling Craig, I was like, because he was talking about the time lapse, and I was like, yeah, they did that beautiful time lapse of mushrooms on one of the planet Earths, and uh, they have like the bioluminescent ones that they show come out at night, and they have these beautiful colors. And he was like, yeah, that's Louis stuff. He licensed it out, and I was like, get the fuck out of here. So it was really cool to see it. And it's, I mean, it is visually stunning. I cried in the fucking movie. I mean, I cry in Abominable with Bear, but I, so I do cry in movies. <laughs> like, that's, I do cry. But um, yeah, when Paul brings his mom up and talks about no more breast cancer, stage four breast cancer, cured from the turkey tail. The turkey chemo. tail mushrooms. Yeah. So, yeah. In, so in the movie, he talked about how turkey tail coupled with chemo could mm-hmm. make it more effective. Is that correct? And it also enhances the immune system, which is a critical piece when you're obviously when you're receiving chemo, you're killing off. It's like antibiotics. You're killing off good guys and bad guys. It's very hard on the immune system. So that's one of the really cool things about turkey tail is you're boosting the immune system, which allows the chemo to work better. And it also has some immune properties that help kill cancer cells to begin with, uh, even in its own right. But he's what's, what's cool about Paul is he's not, he's not Timothy Leary. He's not going head on against the system. He's saying, these are how these things can work in conjunction with what we already have and make them better. And that's a really cool piece. Yeah. And we were talking out on the water just now about um, how they can treat homes organically with fungus that'll kill termites like the trojan horse dude that was one of the coolest aspects of uh of it because they showed how um you know if you if uh, a termite or ant is infected with some kind of fungus usually what will happen is there will be garter ants that will stay outside the colony and they will then take the ant that's been infected out to a separate location bite its head off, and then kill themselves to make sure they don't infect the colony. But with this new fungus, um, it basically doesn't um, uh, show itself on the, the ant or termite until, the ant or, until it makes its way back into the colony, which then can give a fungal infection to the whole colony and kill it, which for people who want to get rid of any of these insects in their homes is a massive market, and you don't need to tent your house anymore. Yeah, and it's clean, right? It's not hurting anything. Yeah. Another huge, huge component. They go they go so many different angles and avenues through that. Obviously, for those who have followed Paul, he just finished like 15 years worth of work and finally had uh, his all of his work published in Nature, one of the world's foremost journals on how we can save the bees. And it's a very easy way to treat bees if we have our own colonies and things like that, uh, to treat them with a fungus that prevents them from dying. And there's obviously with all the pesticides and everything like that, like that's, you know, as well as anybody, how hard that battle is and that it's not going to change anytime soon. But if we can treat them 
they'll survive and we won't have an ecosystem collapse. Yeah. Yeah, I really like how much Paul focuses on the solutions. This is something that I think about a lot. Like, how do you want to show up in the world? Um, Timothy Leary or Paul Stamets? There are people who are fighting the system. They're fighting what's existing right now. Um, And I think that it's really important for people um, to play that role because they're pointing out what a problem is. And you need to know what the problem is to know how to move around it. But then you have a lot of people, you have people like Paul Stamets, um, people in your world, in the health and fitness world, who are like, okay, we don't need to bring down the current paradigm before we can adopt a new one. We can circumvent it. And I think a lot of people who listen to podcasts are those types of people. They're like, okay, I want to, I understand that the current, um, you know, the status quo, the current paradigm is is behind the times in a lot of ways. And there's this new information out there that I can go get right now and apply to my life and the rest of the world will catch up. Yeah, and you don't have to wait for that, right? Exactly. It's empowering when we have options. Who's the girl? There's a 16-year-old girl that's all over Instagram. Greta Thornburg. Yeah. So she's she's kind of the Timothy Leary right now. And, and this isn't me taking a stab at her, but, you know, the world does need people to point this stuff out, and that's fine. I think she's misinformed with, with a lot of the stuff that she talks about with meat, and all you have to do is follow Rob Wolf on Instagram. He has a book he's been working on for four years uh, with another great author on, on the impact of animal production, right? And there's, look, there is no question that cutting down the rainforest will have the biggest impact on environment, far bigger than anything else, far bigger than any fucking cars, far bigger than people lighting dung in their living rooms in India to stay warm, far worse. But even factory farmed animals release a fraction of methane compared to any of these other issues that we have, right? Their contribution to global warming is far less. But, um, you know, she's not offering a ton of solutions. Then they show the kid, there was a meme that I saw that showed her, and then it showed the kid who at 16 had come up with the idea to, to get rid of the giant Texas-sized plastic in the ocean the, from the uh, South Pacific? Yeah. Um, gosh, I'll think of his name right now. Uh, he's like 21 or 22 yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously he has a ton of funding from guys like Elon Musk and different people that are, that are going to make that work, right? So the solutions-oriented is a really cool thing to see as well. It's not like stop everybody from using plastic today. It's like, well, sure, like well, let's work on different ways. Like maybe we have glass bottles or we... You know, we use analgene or something like that that's reusable. I'm all about that. Yeah. There's a lot to go into right there. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> I have many things to say on many of the subjects. Um, so I want to get into meats with you because I, I um, think that, unfortunately, a lot of the memes that are out there around environmentalism are incorrect. Um, one is that the methane, the cow farts and burps are such a major contributor to um, climate change. There's a book called The Vegetarian Myth. Um, I forget the author's name, but Chris Ryan had the author on okay. on his podcast. It's really well done. But just about how that's that's an incorrect meme that we have out in the culture. The second incorrect meme that I just want to correct, want to point out there, is that there is an island in the ocean it's twice the island. size of Texas. Yeah. yeah, it's a gyre. So, so around the world, there are five gyres um, that are basically like big spinning toilet bowls in the middle of the ocean. It's where currents converge. Um, and if you drop a plastic bottle off 
the the cliff here in Santa Cruz, eventually it will make its way out into the Great Pacific Gyre, which is way bigger than twice the size of Texas. But it's basically where then all this plastic break de- breaks down and turns into plastic confetti. Um, one of the issues that I see, I mean, we just you you like hit me with like five topics that I'm super passionate <laughs> about, know. but. Um, I think that one issue with the ocean cleanup project um, that this this brilliant young kid is doing, and I'm just spacing on his name right now, so I apologize, but is this, um, it's the idea that if we clean all this plastic up and bring it back to shore, that will provide the solution. Mm. Because you just take it one step further. It's like, okay, let's say that we can clean this plastic up. Most people think we can't because um, plastic breaks down into smuch, su- such small pieces that the fish eat it and it's virtually impossible to take back to shore. It's not like the plastic Coke bottle that you brought out into the middle of the ocean that made its way into the middle of the ocean is in that same form. But the second kind of f- flaw in thinking in my perspective is that by bringing it back to shore, that will provide humanity with the solution that we need. Um, and I think that what, what it can do is it can kind of create this mentality that, that recycling has created, which is like, okay, I'm putting this in the blue bin. It's now out of sight, out of mind. And what we've, the recycling is, is I'm mixed on it. It's been great in a lot of reasons, for a lot of reasons, but in a lot of other reasons, it's kind of just allowed us to, to put the problem over there. And for a lot of our lives, most of our recycling has just gone on big cargo containers off to China, uh, where China then would most of the time just incinerate it because they have different recycling um, and and environmental standards as the U.S. Um, So it just allowed the industry to continue to pollute and continue to um, manufacture more plastic products. Plastic isn't inherently a horrible product, right? It's made our lives way better, but it has this really big external cost. And I think that um, it's important to to look at environmental and social issues, not from like the good guys and the bad guys, and we're fighting the bad guys. It's to look at it from what are the industries that are profiting from these products and what are the costs that they're now forcing society to bear? So when it comes to plastic... If there were no cost, there'd be no problem. But there is a cost, and that it, it, it's when the product has finished its kind of life cycle on this linear path to waste, and then um, that cost is is borne mostly by developing countries who now have basically, you know, we've turned their entire countries into landfills because two years ago. Uh, China stopped taking our plastic, so now we ship a lot of ours off to Indonesia and Malaysia, and you'll just see these kind of plastic dystopias, um, mostly from American products. We saw uh, my mother-in-law just went and did a trip, a missionary trip, with her husband out to India, and she, she has videos of kids and old women in the river, they bathe in the river, they drink water from the river, and it's a fucking sea of plastic and metal cans just going through the river. That's where they that's where they dump the trash. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not people fish out of there too. Yeah. But like humans will wash and defecate in the river 
and it's a sea of plastic. And it's like, that's, that's like, I've been to some third world countries. I've been to Afghanistan. I've been to Iraq. I've been to Central and South America. I haven't seen anything like that. Yeah. You know, it's just a different, it's a different ball game. It's a whole different ball game. Um, but I think that one thing that um, I'm trying to do in, in deepening my own thinking around environmental issues um, is to look at it from a, uh, a perspective of um, what are the costs that are that society is forced to bear as a result of these products coming into our society. I mean, the, the classic example is um, Purdue Pharmaceutical coming up with Oxycontin, right? Oxycontin was... Uh, Great product helped a lot of people get out of pain, but has resulted in this huge opiate epidemic. And now the costs are borne by coroner's offices and firefighters and nerf nurses and you know all of us, right? So, who should pay that that price? My view is that um, there's no problem with capitalism in and of itself. Like, if you have a great idea, you want to go out there and and make a product and and make a buck, like that's great. Um, transferring goods for services. I just think that there should be a higher price on, I I think that we shouldn't have to, um, I I think that the externalized costs that society is forced to bear should be shifted back onto corporations. So the externalized cost for Oxycontin is, okay, there's this opioid epidemic. Purdue Pharmaceuticals should have to bear some of those costs. And they now have, like they just filed for bankruptcy because they've been sued by over a dozen states um, for falsely marketing Oxy as as non-addictive through the 80s and 90s, resulting in this. Um, I think that similarly, uh, companies like Coca-Cola, that you know, is they were found to be one of the largest, the largest plastic polluter globally, should be forced to set up waste uh, infrastructure in the st- in the countries that they know they're they're shipping their products to, but the countries they know full well have no way of dealing with that product. Mm. So I think yeah. that, that I think it's just a more inclusive way of of um, dealing with our materials economy, and then you're going to see more of those um, solutions coming out, hopefully, um, in the years to come. I like that. How, what do you feel about uh, carbon tax? Um, there's a good uh, short film that I think everyone should check out called um, "The Story of Cap and Trade." It's this animated 10 minute movie on uh, YouTube on YouTube that can talk about this stuff way more eloquently than I can because I'm not an expert on cap and trade so I'll just um, I'll, I'll start there uh, before I flail my way into uh, a place that I barely have uh, grounds to speak on but um, I think that so, so the question is what I think about carbon tax mm-hmm. as a means as, for like curbing our use of gasoline and things like that. I think that that if I think that it's one way that you can handle um, big polluters to to have to bear a few of those costs that they're currently putting onto society. Um, I think that the price of um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a tough one, you know. Because I think, I think with what you just said, yeah. I don't mean to cut you off. Go but- for it. If it is put on large corporations and people who are using enormous amounts, I think that's where it should be put. Yes. I do not think it should come down to people trying to commute to work. Now, I, got, I have a Prius. I also have a fucking giant Tundra once we moved to Texas because I no longer had California gas prices. But um, 
I'm mindful of how much gas we use. When I, when I drive my son to school, I'm we're in the fucking Prius. You know, I want to yeah. save on gas, even though Texas is big oil country and gas is cheap there. But even here in California, they have a gas tax. Who benefits from that? The fucking California government. You know, they're not yeah. using that money to fix roads. They're not using that money for education or anything like that. And it sure as hell isn't stopping people from driving or getting more people to carpool. Yeah, it's not doing any of those things. Right, so it's just a money grab, in my opinion. They have a water tax here in California. Yeah, well, and and you know, I think that this is going to lead us down into uh, a deeper part of the conversation. This is why I like talking with with you, is because we we take the issue and then we're just continuing to follow it further and further upstream. And in my mind, where the conversation will go next upstream is um, why is it that certain laws are passed that absolve corporations of the impact that they have on society, um, specifically corporations with sociopathic business models, um, and why are those taxes and those those costs um, being pushed to the citizen? Um, and the reason for that is that right now, it's very difficult to get a politician to do anything that you want them to do unless you pay them. Um, and there is a huge industry and millions and millions of dollars dedicated by corporations to get politicians to do what they want. And um, a lot of what they want is just to have a very hands-off approach to um, the corporations doing business. They say, hey, we don't want, if, if we're ExxonMobil, um, we will finance a super PAC that will get you, uh, Kyle Kingsbury, elected. Um, and then what we want from you is uh, just allow us to go drill this area up in Alaska, please. Or you know, if, uh, if we end up creating some huge oil spill, just make sure that, w- that the cost of that oil spill will be less than what it would be to profit. And then ultimately, it just becomes a business decision for these. Like, polluting the world then is just uh, it's a decision of, of uh, profit and loss. So I think that tackling this issue, I think that the, the people that I see who are tackling environmental issues and social issues from the most effective place are focusing on campaign finance reform right now. Um, and that's where I'm focusing a lot of my attention in the stories that I'm trying to tell this year with the Motherfucker Awards. Um, it's the relationship between corporations, lobbyists, and politicians. Um, just as th- that was a lot right there, so mm-hmm. I'll kind of um, just rewind a little bit because it's a, a very um, unsexy topic, campaign finance reform. I can tell people are dozing off already as I say that <laughs> word. Um, but it's super important, and I'll, I'll do my best to explain it in, in the best way that I can without being too verbose. Um, but right now, politicians uh, in the United States spend between 30 and 70% of their time making in office making phone calls to fundraise for their next election. Um, so they are basically calling wealthy people um, to get them to donate to their election. Um, and in 2010, there was a, uh, a law that passed called Citizens United, um, which allowed corporations to act as people. So it allowed corporations to donate unlimited amounts of money 
to super PACs. So a super PAC is something called a political action committee, an independent political action committee. Um, and what these these PACs are, are technically independent of um, politicians. But the way that it ends up working is that, like, let's say you, Kyle Kingsbury, are, are looking to become, um, you know, governor of, of Texas. Um, and there will have, uh, there will be your campaign, which is called um, Texans for Kyle. Now, this super PAC might just mirror that name. It might be called uh, uh, Kyle and the Texans or something like that, right? And this will be technically independent from you, but financed by a group of corporations that then um, basically, you know, they will pay for all of your uh, election, you know, your campaign videos. You know, they will put maybe millions of dollars in negative ads against your opponent. And they will be in large part, the marketing vehicle to help get you elected. Now, once you get elected, you might wonder, like, huh, I wonder what uh, the, the what, what I call it, Kyle for uh, Texans for Kyle Super PAC might want from me. Like, oh, well, really interesting. Um, it's ExxonMobil uh, financed that Super PAC. Or the Geo Group, which is one of the largest private prisons uh, companies, financed that Super PAC. Um, okay, well, it looks like let's take Geo Group as an example because um, they're a private prisons company. They're they're uh, looking for a bid to be able to expand the private prisons industry in Texas. Um, okay, well I'm going to pass a law that allows the Geo Group to participate in in Texas, um, and we're going to be giving them then hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer money to expand the private prisons industry. So what ends up happening is. You, the the politician now, has this sixth sense um, around what your funders want, and many times that f- those funders are large corporations that um, want expanded business. But it's it then many times is at the cost of people. So an example for that is like Exxon Mobil. They have a, they have a lot of externalized costs, oil spills, uh, pollution, climate change. Uh, private prisons, hugely externalized costs because their whole business model is is focused on incarcerating people. Um, and when you have a society then that is has a or when you have a, an industry then that is focused on incarcerating people, you're gonna lock up a fuck ton of people for nonviolent drug offenses and keep them there, keep them locked up for as long as possible. Um, so. Hope I didn't lose too many people there, but it's <laughs> but it's a really interesting like look behind how our system is actually operating, and I think that hopefully when we talk about the issues in this way, it becomes l- less. I mean, in some ways, less emotional between just people on the right and people on the left. Like, I don't know too many like conservatives that are super stoked that their representatives don't actually give a fuck about what they think anymore. Um, and I don't know too many Democrats that uh, or liberals that like that either. So I think that people like um, Lawrence Lessig, who is a really, um, really articulate um, voice on campaign finance reform, is someone who everyone should be paying attention to. And he just came out with a new podcast series called uh, Another Way. And it's like a it's a 10 part podcast series on how we could be how we could reform government. Um, that I recommend everyone check out. We'll link to it in the show yes. notes for sure. 
That was Thanks a lot. Thanks for that. It was well, a lot. We, you just touched on it uh, just a little bit, but I want to give, I know we're, we're release, co-releasing this on yeah. the Kyle Tierman show as well as the Kyle Kingsbury podcast. Two Kyles in the house. Um, talk a bit about how the first Motherfucker Awards went down. Who who were some of the winners uh, and then what you're trying to accomplish with this, with this second year coming up? Sure. Uh, so the Motherfucker Awards is a satirical awards show that I co-created with Chris Ryan, who is uh, another uh, fellow in the podcasting space. Uh, He's the author of Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death uh, and host of the podcast Tangentially Speaking. And I spent a lot of time um, farting around at his house down in LA. He lets me sleep in his van in his driveway whenever I'm down there. And one day we were just talking about um, how kind of how smug environmentalists are. That's actually how we we uh, started the conversation and how Mother Earth is losing and it's and that we should be celebrating the winners. Like a lot of these corporations that are making billions of dollars in profits um, and destroying the world uh, should really be celebrated for their efforts. Um, And Chris is friends with uh, a ton of comedians. I'm a journalist and um, knew a lot of investigative journalists who were covering a lot of these issues. And we came up with the idea to do an Academy Awards style show where we celebrated the corporations, individuals, and lobbying groups that were um, responsible for fucking Mother Earth the hardest, aka the name the Motherfucker Awards. (laughs) So um, we got um, a ton of cool people involved. We got uh, Matt Taibbi, who's a writer for the Rolling Stone. Um, he's A lot of people kind of call him like the Hunter S. Thompson of our day. He's the badass who takes down big banks. Um, and I'm just surprised he hasn't been assassinated for some of the work that he's done, um, as an example. And we celebrated uh, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, who's the number one financier of dirty energy globally. We then so then he would go up and he would read off these three nominees of uh, in the banking sector, um, and then he would read the winner, and then we would get comedians to go up on behalf of these corporations and give acceptance speeches, talking about how proud they were of fucking Mother Earth. So uh, in that category, for example, we had uh, comedians Natasha Legero and Moshe Kasher, who are in real life they're a. a couple and they have a really funny netflix special out right now um called the honeymoon special uh but we got them to go up and pretend to be the heirs of jp morgan chase bank um and they their whole bit was that they were a brother and sister in an incestuous romantic relationship (laughs) and the only thing that um got them horny was financing dirty energy so their whole thing was like Unless you're somehow anti-incest, you'll have to agree that we need to keep financing dirty energy. It was fucking hilarious. And the whole audience participates and they're laughing and cheering, you know, as uh, as these guys are giving, you know, real kind of dark, heavy facts. Uh, but, you know, it's like the it was like the funnest protest you'll ever get to go to. And instead of... Um, being really angry, you got to scream and clap and learn about issues from, you know, banks that finance dirty energy 
to um, last year, you know, I was picking on Purdue Farmer earlier. We had uh, Simon Rex, who's a mutual friend of ours, uh, aka Dirt Nasty, go up on behalf of Purdue Pharmaceutical, um, who we celebrated in the spirit category for um, outstanding efforts to break the human spirit. Uh, and he went up and was like, you know, what <laughs> was on his base, like, you know, uh, we've now killed more people than soldiers died in the Vietnam War. 70,000 versus 50,000 in Nam. We're up almost 10%. <laughs> Everyone's cheering and clapping. So um, that was a show. Uh, we had a freaking blast doing it. It was a ton of work, and we're doing it again. And I think that um, the biggest lesson for me and the reason why I'm still super stoked to do it is because I feel like it's really difficult to engage in any of these kinds of issues um, earnestly because it gets really sad really quickly. Um, And I don't honestly identify with a lot of the people that do engage with these issues in angry ways um, because I feel like, man, I... Anger is a very taxing emotion to take on for a long period of time. And I see a lot of, you know, real well-meaning environmentalists that have taken these kinds of issues on and it just destroys them. Yeah, it wears you down. It wears you down. And I think that we can't necessarily solve, you know, these issues on our own. I have no, like, delusions of grandeur that we're going to be you know, solving these issues from doing a silly little comedy show, but... I think that you really ha- you do have the choice to determine how you want to think about these issues, um, and that's what I hope people get from the motherfucker awards. Is you do have a choice to be able to um, laugh at some of the darkest issues of our time and engage with them creatively, and I think that that's one of the most beautiful aspects of being human. Yeah, and then you you get to operate from a place of understanding and learning, and at the same time, it's fun in a way, right? You touched on that anger piece, and it reminded me of a woman I've had on the show named Anahata, who was out in Sedona. She's a close friend of Aubrey and mine. And um, her daughter was getting ready to go to college, and she was going to participate in the Women's March when Trump got elected. And Anahata, being very intelligent and wise, said, you know, I want you to go. I want you to experience it. But just pay attention to how many people are there in celebration of women and how many people are there in anger of what's going on right now and, and, and just witness. And she said there was maybe she could count on one hand, how many people were celebrating women and the other 90 plus percent of the people were there in rage. Right. But that's, that's the thing. Like you read a book like nonviolent communication and it's all about receptivity. Can I communicate in a way without blame or judgment so that the other person will receive the message right in any time we have a conversation with somebody you want to be heard that's it. That's fucking communication 101, right? You want to be heard. And even just feeling heard, like if I'm talking to you right now and I know you're listening and paying attention to me, it feels good to be heard, right? And it's palpable now in today's world where you're mid-conversation and somebody's on their cell phone going, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, what was that? You know, yeah. like, <laughs> I get caught doing that with my wife sometimes, I right? But hate that. But it's, that's the thing, yeah. right? Like, if you, if you can communicate in a way without blame or judgment and you can state what's going on, how you feel, what your feelings are, what is the need, and then make a request, that's a totally different 
way to approach conversation. And with the big issues, that's what's lacking. What's lacking is manners, kindness, generosity, gentleness in our communication, right? And it's never going to be received from the other side if it's in your face with blame and finger pointing. Even if you're fucking right, even if it is 100% true what you're saying, it has to come in a way that will be received. Yeah. You know? And uh, rhetoric is what will destroy our country, right? When we start to see people as other and say, fuck you, you're different than I am. You don't hold the same values as I do. That's way more destructive than the belief itself, in my opinion. Uh, I, there's a really good um, line that uh, I, I'm, I'll, I'm sorry for uh, misquoting um, or, or misattributing it, but it's, uh, I am a friend of your soul and an enemy of your project. Mm, because like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that, hey, it's all good, sweet, Exxon, just keep doing your thing. Uh, it means like, no, this is, as a species, we are, I think, turning a corner where we're starting to realize that um, prosperity and environmental destruction don't need to be linked anymore. Twenty, A quarter of energy coming from California now comes from solar. Like this is, it is ramping up in a big way. And a lot of people are realizing that we can make these uh, technologies a lot more efficient we can prosper and lead great lives, and we don't need to rape and pillage the planet as a result. There are still a lot of industries that have their um, you know, feet dug in the ground, and they want to continue to extract as, as much resources as they can until they, until they can't anymore. And I think that we need to, as a, as a society, stand up against that, but to do it in a more creative way and do it out of love for the planet, not fear and anger, which I think is what you're, you just said yeah. really well. Have you have you heard much of Greg Braden? No, tell me about this. So he was just on uh, London Real a second time, and uh, I'll, I'll link to that podcast as well. But he talked about um, solar cycles and that, you know, th- that climate change is, in part, we are contributing to it, and in part, it's a part of the cycle, right? And we can see that in some of the ice cores, and, and he gets into some of the science behind that. He's been a geologist for 30 or 40 years now. Um, and he says he's, he wants to be very careful with that statement because he doesn't, that, that generally will take people off the hook. Like, see, told you so, we got nothing to do with it, right? And that's an issue because even as the climate changes, that wouldn't necessarily cause the acidification of the ocean. That wouldn't cause a lot of other issues that we are contributing to. Or just asthma. If you're a kid in a low-income yeah. neighborhood and you live near a coal power plant, like regardless of climate change, that's fucked for your lungs. Yeah, right? there's a lot of... So, so there's it, does, a lot of, it doesn't mean that there's, there's no a lot, issues. a lot of ways yeah. we're contributing, right? Um, but he's, yeah, it's, it's just a fantastic episode that he does. And um, yeah, I forget where I was going with that, but he's, he's, he's definitely, I highly recommend people listen to that because he has some really cool points on that. And um, I think, I think that's it. You're, are you familiar with Milton Friedman? Yes. Yeah. Stanford so, Prison Experiments. He's fantastic, right? dude. And he talks a lot of bit about he talks a lot about the economy and how we drive how how we drive innovation through a free and open market. Yeah. And it's not by a carbon tax or anything like that. It's by guys like Elon Musk creating Tesla. It's by Toyota hearing the people and making a fucking Prius very affordable. Right? It's by things like that where we where we then have those options. But at a certain point, you also have you have to have people in charge with a backbone to stand up for you. And I use this point on food. 
So I know I've brought this up on my podcast before, but in a lot of the Nordic countries in Northern Europe, they give a shit. They pay attention, right? So Kentucky Fried Chicken has more, they have more franchises internationally than McDonald's does. And when they wanted to go into Sweden and Norway and some of these other countries, they couldn't get the Colonel's original recipe into them because they were 33 times higher the MSG that's allowed in their country per serving. 33 times higher. Wow. We don't have that issue here because yeah. nobody's fucking looking out for us, right? And so that's just one example. Also, aspartame. You talk about lobbying. How does aspartame go through? It's a fucking neurotoxin. The second your core temperature gets up to 102 degrees. You have a Diet Coke pre-workout. You go hit, you go work out and hit the sauna. It's now a neurotoxin, hmm. right? Well, that just got pushed through. It just got pushed through. Wait, explain that. Aspartame is in chewing gum. Yeah, yeah. It's in fucking Diet Coke. It's in a lot of diet stuff. It's an artificial sweetener. And obviously, there's tons of research now with the microbiome and issues around that. But my my point is, like, this gets through here. It does not get through there, right? And especially with children, they they really go to bat for kids there. So Kraft has mac and cheese. It has yellow food dye in America. Over there, that's not allowed. So they have to use anato, which is a, a yellow, an organic yellow food coloring that they use to make your Kraft mac and cheese, right? Just because they don't want artificial flavors or coloring in anything that goes into children out there. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of people talk about it as uh, the precautionary principle. A lot of Europe uses what's called the precautionary principle where they say, all right, before you want to put this new chemical into our market uh, where kids are going to be exposed to it, uh, families are going to be eating it. You need to prove that it's safe. Whereas in the U.S., we tend to l- view it o- in an opposite way, where we say it's uh, it's kind innocent of until innocent, proven it's innocent until proven guilty. Which uh, you know, it it allows companies to be able to make a fuck ton of money very quickly. But then you know, you realize like, oh shit, we put lead in the paint, and like, ah, DDT is actually not safe. Uh, one of the reasons why. Uh, Hawaii is ground zero for uh, genetic engineering globally. So um, a huge amount of crops out in in Hawaii, uh, corn crops and soy and canola, are dedicated to um, GMO testing. So these are crops where, for people who don't know much about GMO, it's it's basically um, an engineering of a plant so that it can withstand more pesticides. That's one of the primary uses of genetic engineering. So there are crops that they will test different pesticides on, and they'll test heavier and heavier amounts of pesticides. One of the reasons they do it in Hawaii is because um, that state has very lax environmental laws. Um, So they can use certain pesticides that would never be allowed in places like Europe. I didn't wait. The question I had, though, was... Aspartame is a neurotoxin when your body temperature, raise, temperature yeah, when it rises. rises. Yeah. Interesting. So you never want to have a Diet Coke and do a workout. You just don't want to have a fucking Diet Coke. <laughs> like, let's, let's be honest. No Especially when you, have, when you have, and that's, again, going back to Milton Friedman, yeah. if you love soda, get a fucking Zevia. Yeah. It's going to cost more, but so what? It's not going to hurt you. Yeah. Right? Like, we have alternatives, you know? They got a ton of those uh, Waterloo. I mean, it's not as good as the Zevia. It doesn't taste like soda, but there's a lot of alternatives to a carbonated beverage, whatever this is, La Croix, right? La Croix. La Croix. LaCroix. Yeah, this is good. This is good. LaCroix. This is good. Uh, this is good. Um, you know Naval Ravikant? Mm-hmm. That was my... But I have four podcasts that are my favorite this year. Naval on Rogan is number one. Dude. That was like a spiritual experience. 
I I've n- very rarely heard. I mean, you and I get to listen to a lot of very articulate speakers, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone do that well on a podcast and deliver ideas in such a concise and perfect way. But he had a very concise way of summing up the environmental movement. He said, environmentalists identify the correct problem. Hey, there's one world. We're all living here. We have a limited amount of resources. Let's take care of it. But they uh, pitch the wrong solution, which is uh, we all need to go back in into uh, past times and we can't um, you know live pro- he has a, a more articulate way than explain uh, more articulate way than basically I we all got to be Gamish. Well exactly that's and that's what a lot of environmentalists try and say we can do but sorry we we have uh, you know, developing countries that are gonna want to come online and they're gonna want electricity so we better make sure that their electricity is coming from renewable energy not coal because it's coming either way and uh, just trying to tell them that they don't deserve it even though we've had it for the past you know hundred years is not gonna fly so yeah I, I agree I think I mean this is we're, I, I like that we're kind of maintaining a thread of uh, you know McKenna versus or Stamets you know wh- how do you engage with these issues Leary versus Stamets L- sorry yeah. Leary, yeah, Leary yeah. versus Stamets um, I want to get your perspective on uh, meat because we touched on that briefly but this is a whole nother aspect of the conversation that we can get into what has your um evolution been like in learning about the um, health impacts or benefits of meat and kind of where you stand on the whole issue now? Yeah. So first, let me just say, so it's not a blanket one size fits all because I am going to have Paul Saladino on the carnivore doc who's really into nose to tail. Um, one of the first things I learned about this was through Paul Check and his book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy. And he he followed a guy named... Um, Oh, shit, don't let me draw a blank here. Weston A. Price, who was a dentist. He traveled the globe in the 30s. And what he found was, and he, he researched indigenous cultures from all over the world. And what he found is if they had eaten their natural diet and they had no Western influence, they all had perfect teeth, Even most of which didn't even have a toothbrush. Most of these tribes didn't have a word for cancer, didn't have a word for heart disease. They didn't have a word for any of the shit, that, diabetes. It just didn't, didn't exist, right? And these are people who are just ripped. Everyone looks good. You know, long lifespan, good health. And he, he looked at people who lived on seal and whale blubber, you know, in the Arctic circle, and then all the way to pygmy tribes who lived on almost 100% on yams and sweet potatoes. Right. So the, the, it contrasted wildly. Right. But what he found was closer to the equator, you had much smaller prey and you also had carbohydrates year around, right? So they could get away with having more carbohydrates. Obviously there's less seasonal change. And then they would eat fish and fowl, smaller birds, chicken and fish. And those fish are also leaner because they're closer to the equator. Then as you go closer to the poles, you're going to be able to get more of the larger, more larger prey. Like, you know, obviously it's been a, been a minute since woolly mammoths have been around, but mammoths, bison, cattle, things like that as you get closer. And then also seasonally, you would go without carbohydrates because there would be a freeze, a, a, a period of time where at least three or four months, you're going without those things. And if people were doing that, they were in perfect health. The second they introduced bread and a lot of things that we have in the West, we saw issues. 
And so I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Now, if you have a mom from Jamaica and a dad from Ireland, who knows? You could have five fucking siblings and every one of you would take different pieces of your parents and, and it would range. I have a friend who, who did a, his DNA fit. Mom is Mexican, 100%. Dad's 100% German. He does not produce amylase in his gut, so he can't break down starch. Well, his who cooks? Mom cooks. Mexican mom cooks. And she uses tortillas and, and uh, beans and corn and all these things, all starches. So after high school football, dude ballooned up like a pufferfish. Goes on keto, drops 50 pounds instantly because he does better with heavier fats and, and red meat, right? Now, somebody from the equator who's large, both parents from there, it's not, you know, it's not hard. They don't need to do a DNA fit. They can figure that out on their own. They probably wouldn't do well eating heavy animal fat, right? And there, we can see this now with, with genetic testing and things like that. But I think that's an important piece to keep in mind. Now, I've read a lot of books on meat and, and I followed guys like Rob Wolf, Mark Sisson, people like that. And it appears most people do well with some meat. There's a handful of people who are high methylators like Rich Roll, Darren Olean, who's coming on the podcast later this week, who's probably the most yoked vegan I've ever met. He's like 46. On his 46th birthday, he threw a 100-pound weight vest on and did 10 pull-ups like a boss. Like, he's a savage. Most people do, do do better with a little bit of meat in their diet. And Rob Wolf was a raw vegan. Like, a lot of these people gave that an honest go for years, felt their health dwindle, and then circled back to eating meat, and they immediately improved their health. For my wife and I, and again, I apologize for my listeners. I know I've said this a million times, but we did the 23andMe. We we took our raw data and sent it over to foundmyfitness.com, Dr. Renda Patrick's site, and it showed that neither one of us can take ALA, alpha-linoic acid, from flaxseed and chia seed and use that to create DHA or EPA, which are critical for the brain. These are the critical fish oils. When you take a fish oil supplement... That's what you're shooting for. Prenatals have DHA in it because mom needs it and the baby needs it. It's mandatory. So without that, if we went vegan, that would cause huge issues. We might not even be able to get pregnant. And then you look at, and it just goes down the list. We can't take vitamin A. We can't take beta carotene from carrots and sweet potatoes and turn that into usable vitamin A. We have to get it from egg yolk, uh, liver, and different organ meat. At least half the population is that way, right? So you can't make claims like this is a healthier way to eat if... Half the people on this planet would suffer severe health consequences without meat, right? So now the question becomes, okay, how do we do meat appropriately? And there's an excellent book called The Soil Will Save Us. Uh, ben Greenfield did a podcast with the author, and it, it honestly, it, it covers it from all angles. It talks about how much better grass-fed, grass-finished meat is and pasture-raised chickens that eat bugs and worms and in their natural diet, not soybeans and fucking corn. And when you get that, you get a much bigger nutritional profile. You have much more CLA, conjugate linoleic acid, which is the fat that burns fat. You have much higher omega-3 content and a much better uh, vitamin and mineral profile in that meat as well. So all that with that, and then when you shift over to factory farmed, we know that toxins are stored in the fat. And uh, this is in any health book. I mean, it's in How to Eat Move Me Healthy with Paul Check, Dr. Stephen Gundry, who wrote... Um, the plant paradox talks a lot about this. All the lectins, all the antibiotics, all the shit that that animal's fed is going into your body. You get that in their animal fat because it's stuff that they can't break down. They're not shitting it out. They're storing it in their fat. And then that's what you consume. 
So now you're going to consume those things and that's causing a lot of issues for people. So there's a clear cut difference from a health standpoint. There's a clear cut difference on a spiritual standpoint. You know, are you eating a fucking animal that was born in the matrix or are you eating something that had a, a decent life before it died? Right. And so I think those are all factors. And then even when you get into the environmental issue, Grass-fed animals that, that are pasture-raised sequester carbon for up to 500 years into the soil. And, as we saw in Fantastic Fungi, that cow shit that gets shit into grass and then stomped on by all the other herd that's walking around, that feeds back into the soil and it actually helps create that ecosystem and save the soil. It's one of the ways that we can, we can create a really good living microbiome within the soil. So there's so much in there. And that's where I'm going to get to with... Uh, with this engineered meat, I don't know. I would say, you know, if I, I would, I would kind of take that. Uh, I, don't, I forget the term that you used. Cell-based meat. meats. Yeah, for the cell-based meats, but the term that you used for the Nordic countries. Oh, precautionary principle. That's how I would view that. Right. Right. And the reason for that is, if you grow it in a lab, that could solve a lot of issues for people. Right. You get the animal-based protein. You get a lot of things that we need. But where are the micronutrients coming from? that animal didn't live. It didn't eat anything. Mm. It didn't soak in sunlight, right? Like everything's, everything's built around photosynthesis from our ecosystem. So even if I don't consume plants, but I consume an animal that ate largely all grass-fed you know, throughout its life, I am getting the photosynthesis from that animal who ate the grass. That's I'm getting, a really good I'm point. I'm getting these things, right? And, and iron and all the other things that go into the animal that make it what it is, I'm getting that because it lived in its natural environment and ate the natural food supply that it was intended to do so. And I think that could be one of the missing ingredients. If I'm just eating meat for protein, it's no different than having a fucking whey protein shake. And I don't have whey protein shakes. I'm sorry, we know we sell that on it, but I just don't do it. I want to get that from animals because there's so much more to the story than just the protein I'm consuming. Right. Yeah. And conversely, if you are a vegan, there's so much more to the story in terms of how, of where those plants came from. Because if you're going to get a Beyond Meat burger or an Impossible bur burger, asking yourself, where did those ingredients come from? Well, they came from huge, uh, huge farms, you know, soy farms and those farms, both environmentally. And this is a, this is a point that's brought up, um, in the vegetarian myth, um, Agriculture is the problem. Agri mass industrial agriculture in general, um, because when a quarter of the United States is now dedicated to industrial agriculture, and when you ask the question, what happened to those ecosystems um, that that lived there? What happened to the wolves? What happened to the animals that lived on those prairies? I mean, those. Uh, those animals all just got destroyed. They gone. You know, they gone. Yeah, the <laughs> the mice, the you know, the falcons that fed on the small animals. Uh, it all gets destroyed. So, um, and Beyond Burger, the, all the, all those Impossible Burger, they're loaded with glyphosate. Yeah, they're fucking loaded, and a lot of those are really hard to digest to begin with. Like so, in the in uh, the Plant Paradox with Dr. Stephen Gundry, he talks about plants as conscious, and that's one of the things I want to get out in the weeds here with psychedelics, but that's one of the first lessons I received from ayahuasca. Everything is conscious. Animism is real. Whatever soul I have, they have. And Gundry just says plain out, like they don't want to be eaten. So they create their own natural pesticides and herbicides. And those are things that are stuff we can consume and not notice in one sitting. If I eat a kale salad, I'm not going to be like, man, I really felt like I just had a ton of oxalates. 
I don't have autoimmune issues. I don't have irritable bowel syndrome or anything like that. It's just not going to hit me the same way it would with somebody that's already teetering on the edge. Mm. But at the same time, over the course of my life, if I continue to put that in my body, it takes its toll, right? They don't want to be consumed either. Now, there's certain things that do want to be consumed that you have the seeds, you shit them out, and that's how that plant will reproduce. That's a different scenario. But he goes through that in the book, and it's, I think it's a really important piece there. Yeah, it's such a nuanced, it's such a nuanced and emotional conversation because, uh, you know, if you're not really paying attention to this conversation, you could just hear like, oh, the Kyles are saying that meat is good. Okay, great. I'm going to go get my McDonald's burger, and that's going to be an animal that was fed corn from an industrial cornfield, and there's going to be huge amounts of pesticides. I'm like, no, we're not saying that. But at the same time, if you're a vegan and you're getting your uh, your food from these huge industrial fields, like ugh, that's not great either. So it, it seems like one of the solutions are try and get it locally sourced if you can from smaller farms and try and eat animals that had a variety in their diet or, yeah, go, and, or and go hunt. And eat naturally. And yes, yeah. go hunt. That's a perfect segue. You know, as interesting as... Uh, so I was just looking, I, I just wrote an article on uh, cell-based meats and on uh, Beyond uh, Beyond Meats and the Impossible Burger. And uh, what's allowing the these meat alternatives to taste so much like beef is um, this, this uh, organization, it's a, is it, you just call it a piece of DNA called heme. Do you know about mm -hmm. heme? Yeah, it's, it's one of the most bioavailable forms of iron. Right. So they just found a way to get heme out of plants and then load it into the burgers, which makes it have that kind of bloody, meaty taste. Interesting stuff. Well, it's it's that's always curious to me. It's like, why... <laughs> Why do why do we if we if we don't I, I think Arby's just did a meat carrot just to fucking go heads up like like all right you guys fucking yolo we're doing the meat like, carrot you guys are always trying to do like your plant burger your plant cheese yeah. your plant this and that and um so they did the meat carrot but yeah you know that that's a, that's a funny thing and and again I don't know that that's healthy either right? right like we we have an issue with women have a monthly cycle that helps them balance iron men do not. Right, and there's quite a few doctors that are talking about iron overload and things like that. If we're using uh, iron supplements or different things like that, if you if you work out, you're in luck. You're going to burn through that iron because your body needs a certain amount for hemoglobin, oxygen carrying, and building red blood cells. And if you work out, even if you run or, or do jujitsu, you're going to crush a lot of those red blood cells from the impact. Mm. Just repeated stress, right? So you're that's the turnover you want to not have an iron imbalance. It's a very easy test. You do a serum ferritin in your blood work, and uh, you can get that at wellnessofx.com without a doctor's prescription. It's a little pricey, but um, that's a way you can check on that. One of the ways that we can balance that if we are sedentary and not working out and not ha having that natural recycle is to give blood mm. as men. That can be helpful. But you know, in, and this is something I'm going to bring up with Paul Saladino because he talks quite a bit about this. He's the nose to tail carnivore doc, is that everything's in its right portions within the animal itself. And even in something like liver or organ meat that's just loaded with heme iron and B vitamins that are all methylated, the most bioavailable form of vitamins and minerals that we can take in, super high in vitamin A, a lot of good stuff in, in the organ meats. Our body knows how to take in what it knows how to take in. And he has perfect blood work. He's fucking flawless. A medical doctor who's been on this for two years now. So I think there's something to that. Now, obviously, he has the genetics to eat that way. 
so that's that's just the only caveat I would say. You know, like again, if you're from uh, Central Africa, you might not do well with that. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I was uh, as I was doing research for the article on cell-based meats. There's this huge aspect to the research that's being done around the nomenclature that uh, society would adopt. So they found that lab-grown meat. Um, was a term that people really didn't like, whereas cell-based or uh, slaughter-free meat were all terms that worked really well with the public. Oh, slaughter-free. It's slaughter-free, right? And so it's, it's, um, they brought up uh, this example of how um, in the early 1900s, the avocado was ne- um, hadn't been sold commercially in the United States. And when California farmers started uh, adopting it, the avocate was too difficult to pronounce for English speakers. So they adopted a new name, which was called the alligator pear. So the alligator pear was not the most appetizing name, and, and California farmers had a real hard time selling this. They got together and they, they lobbied um, the dictionary to change the name to avocado, which was really easy for people to say. And now California... Um, is the producer of 90% of the avocados in the U.S. That's awesome. Isn't that an interesting story about interesting. just the marketing of how all this stuff will make its way into our lives? Yeah. Uh, cell-based meats on the market soon. There's a, big, there, there's a big battle right now between uh, or organizations like the Good Food Institute. They're uh, a big one that works on cell-based meats. And the meat and dairy lobby, uh, the the meat and dairy lobby is working to make it so that you can't sell um, cell based meats in the same area um, of the of the supermarket as mm. uh, traditional meats, and even that you can't call it uh, meat. Like they they want to just totally change it. So they're like, no, oh, no, 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 sure. no, yeah. Even though the the people on the cell based meat side are like, no, 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 this is real meat. Like if you have a uh, uh, some kind of um, you know, allergy to regular meat, you're going to have an allergy to this stuff too. The battles behind the scenes that we don't see. Yeah, that is interesting. Well, let's let's talk hunting because here's an, here's another piece that that I think people. There's a great documentary called Food Inc. and yeah. it's fucking phenomenal, and it just talks about how things are packaged in a way that we it it it's packaged in a way that we're kind of removed from the process of how we get food, right? And this is the same for plants as well as meat. Um, but the, the story that I like to say, and, and I get a lot of, have you gotten shit for hunting, especially cause you're an environmentalist? I get a little shit, bit. I get shit yeah. for hunting when I talk yeah. about spirituality and, and plant medicine and things like that. But, um, it's such an odd thing because everything on this planet and likely in the known universe takes life to make it with it, maybe exception of plants, but fungi, they break stuff down. Right. Uh, if, and they're largely digesting, right? They're eating things. Maybe they're already dead. You could be. You could have a fungal issue and, and be alive. That's that might kill you. But everything's trying to eat other things, and, and the closer it is to living, the more healthy it is for you. Well, I, the, I I'm only a dead animal hunter, so whenever I go out on hunts, I find an animal that's already been killed. Then I put an arrow in it. Kyle I, the th- vulture, Tierman. They, they call me the vulture. Then I get my grip and grin shot with it, like I killed it, and <laughs> everybody wins. You just got to clear the flies out real quick. That's me. Just zzz, zzz, zzz. yeah, uh-huh. it's just been right, laying there now, for a few days. Now. Like mm, this one still looks good. We're yeah, going it's, for it's, it. It's a wet age, yeah. wet aged meat. The rodent. Um, yeah, the closer it is to living, the better it is for you, right? If it's shelf stable for two years, that's a problem, 
right? In a box on a shelf, that's a problem. So I think that's something that important to consider. Also, I mean, I can say that I don't, I can't speak on behalf of all hunters, but hunting for me was one of the most spiritual experiences of my life. Was it? Yeah. Like absolutely. Uh, I remember just taking a knee. The first animal I killed was day one. We got out and there was action with boars right from the jump. There's on the big island last year. We did a mm-hmm. uh, spectacular hunting trip with yeah. uh, Peter Atia. Peter Ben Greenfield, uh, Chris Ryan showed up. Yeah. JR. JR Caustic. Yep. And then uh, a couple of my buddies who are uh, Hawaiians, Justin Lee and Jake Muse, uh, took us out mm-hmm. to go. Mark Healy. Mark Healy. Yep. Yeah. We had a Montley crew. Yeah. That all, that like, uh, may I say, like, never would have happened without podcasts. That's true. Never would have happened without the advent of long form conversation and us just like gaining this really cool community from let's be let's be honest, like the Godfather Joe Rogan. It's like it all comes down from th- like that epicenter, and now there are all these little micro communities that are formed from like minded people that are like going out and doing hunting trips. Yeah, pretty just crazy, in- right? Just incredible. And yeah, speaking about Joe, like he's. Seeing him hunt was one of the reasons I wanted to get into it. Hearing him talk about it was one of the reasons I wanted to get into it. And I had my uncles and my dad and my granddad would, would hunt since I was a little kid. And I'd been on a couple of hunting trips when I was really young. But getting into football and fighting, I never had time for it. And uh, I got to meet John Dudley. He hooked me up with a bow on my birthday and trained me for two days. And then a year later, I'm on that trip. And on my birthday, I get my first kill. And it was amazing. I just was, I felt a wash from head to toe with gratitude for the life of that animal. Like I eat meat. I'm, I'm always going to eat meat. So, but to be able to participate in that experience and to have a good shot to where I didn't just injure the animal and track it while it was wailing and, and then have to, to kill it, you know, and um, it was a really special experience. And the next shot, I did have to track the animal and kill it with a knife. And that was a completely different experience, but it taught me a very valuable lesson in only taking the shot when it's a clean kill, you know, because that's, those are sounds that you just don't forget. Yeah. And big time. I don't want anything to suffer, you know, but at the same time that provided food for myself, my family, my tribe, the closest friends. Uh, I got a neighbor who's a former special forces guy that we do big cookouts all the time. And we just had uh, some backstrap from, the boar that I got and uh, from one of JR's sheep because they, all the everyone else other than me uh, took home so much meat they couldn't fit it all. So right. I got some I got some of the runoff from. So do you still do you still have some meat or is yeah. it all gone? Oh yeah, yeah. That's been one of the coolest aspects for me about having gotten into hunting over the last few years is it's made me a much better cook, um, like and so much more into like prepping the meal and I, I don't want to waste any of the meat and I have my friends come over it. it it's a feeling like um, I described like the feeling of being around a campfire and looking at the fire, you know, that kind of like mesmerizing deep human experience that you feel has been felt by so many people before you. It's yeah. one of those same kind of experiences where you're feeding food to people that was, you know, exactly the process of that, that animal from, from start to finish. And it just feels very right. It's like, uh, 
I don't know, like getting your back cracked in the way and you're like, oh, that's what needed to happen. That's really cool. Um, and there's layers to the game, man. That's been a really cool aspect as well is to have some friends out in Hawaii that are have been hunting since they were 10 years old and they do it most days in the week. And those guys understand the layers to the game, man. I mean, th- those guys can track an animal and understand where it's going to be like it's a sixth sense. You know, and the, and guys like Justin Lee, who I met um, years before doing a documentary on coral reefs, like I that was my uh, entrance into the hunting world was through a very strange back door. I was doing a story on the impact that wild pigs were having on coral through land erosion in Hawaii, um, because they're basically like rototillers with hooves, and uh, all when it rains, then in these watersheds mud will go out and it'll suspend over the coral and it kills the coral. And I was out there with a, a production crew um, and Mark Healy had put me in touch with Justin and Justin took me out on a hunt and uh, he ended up killing the pig. But I thought to myself, oh, this is like, this is a, an experience that you should really dive more deeply into. Um, and there's a kind of intensity to it that um, isn't for everyone. But I think that for people like you and I who like to push that edge of ourself of discomfort, it's um, it's a place that you can push pretty hard and it'll push back. Yeah, yeah, it, and and it's all the in between too. You know, like it wasn't just when I was successful in the hunt. Like there was many unsuccessful moments for when me. When you're just hanging many. out and like your buddy's giving you a blowjob and you're just like <laughs> waiting for the animals to come. Like that's a great part of it too, you know? <laughs> that is a great part of it. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up. Oh yeah. That um, shit. I, sorry. That was but yeah, I, I remember being, coming out. I remember being out with Healy and we were watching the sunrise and I, I could see it coming up off the ocean while we were in position and it was so peaceful. And, it, you know, there's times where we're around the campfire and we're shooting the shit and we're talking about, you know, what we did right, what we did wrong, what we need to improve upon and picking the brain of Justin and, and Jake and these different guys. But the vast majority, you're fucking dead silent. It's like a Vipassana, like a silent retreat, you know, where you don't say a word and you're just in nature. And obviously, Hawaii is like one of the be- most beautiful places on earth. So you're there in silence, hiking in the middle of the night to get in a position, watching the sunrise, waiting. And then you got one shot, right? How do I, how do I get quiet inside? How do I calm my breathing, slow it down? How do I do all the things that I tried to master in fighting that I couldn't master? Let me get a crack at it now so I can shoot the clean shot. How is the conversation in your head uh, when you're learning a new skill like hunting now? Um, For me... Like when I was younger and I would learn a new skill, uh, I would have a vicious conversation inside my own head. If I wasn't good at it at immediately, the language in my head was something along the lines of, you fucking idiot. What the fuck are you doing? You're just such an idiot. Like it was like, you deserve to die kind of language. And it's something I worked on a lot. Like, just like, whoa, dude, you gotta, you gotta chill out and pump the brakes on this negative talk. And And now it's more like, damn, Kyle, <laughs> better luck next time. It's like, you know, you slowly shift the words, but um, what is it like, what does the conversation sound like for you now when you're learning a new skill like this? Yeah, there's a couple of things to that. You know, like I for sure had that kind of self negative self-talk and fighting in a lot of my fights. And it was something that I worked very hard to get out of my head. And, and the, that was where I first got into breath work and uh, visualization and a lot of shit just to get 
get out of my own head, you know, and to be in the moment. But one of the practices that really helped me in fighting in particular was to just focus on whatever needed I needed to do next. If I get taken down and it's late in the third round and I've lost the first two rounds and it's likely I'm going to lose the decision to not sit there and go, well, you just lost the fight, you know, fucking now you're going to go down the ranks. Then you just get 50% of your pay. Like none of that shit. If I can focus on what I need to do. So all I need to do at that point is get back up. And so I, and there are techniques that I can focus on to get back up, right? Get some head control, get wrist control, get to my feet, get up. So in the hunt, Thankfully, I had at least learned that in my last four losses before I left the UFC with a tail between my legs. It was just that, you know, we'd get in position and the first thought would usually be slow the breathing. And I'd focus on that nose, nose, just getting really elongating the exhale and then line up the bubble, get in position, elbow up and wait. And, you know, the guides are great. You know, they're there right next to you and they're just whispering like, okay, go for it. You know, and then you just let it go, you know, but even, even, even when I was failing miserably with the axis deer, that's something that, that Rogan kind of prepped me with just in his talks on the podcast was like, number one, it's really good to do things you suck at. It's really good for you. It's good for your spirit. It's good for your, your, it's good for your brain. It's good for, it's good for everything. It's good for a lot more than just the activity that you're doing. But also the fact that it was almost guaranteed I was going to suck. This is my first hunt, you know? Like, I had been on a rifle hunt for elk a year before that, and I didn't. See, I saw the ass of an elk on the last day of the hunt. Didn't take one shot. So this is my first time really actually getting after it and being in that space. And there was a time where Justin and I, we were tracking, we were spotting, stalking, and we were going for probably, I don't know, it felt like forever, and we got into a good position and I was about 15 yards away and he wanted me to wait for the buck. And I had, I had already been unsuccessful for a few days and I was like, fuck it. I'm going to get a doe. I don't care. I just want the meat, you know? And I just want, I just wanted the meat and access tastes incredible too. But I'm like, I don't need the buck. The buck's cool, but let me get a doe and then I can start to, to wait on the buck. Yeah, it's still going to taste great and still meat. And at 15 yards, I've got it lined up perfectly. And it dumps the arrow. The arrow hit a branch. It just dumped. It just knocked it down right in front of the animal. They didn't even move. Then they just looked at me. And then, of course, the... And then they were gone. Yeah. Gone. So that that was very frustrating. But it was also... There was a lot of ways to look at that experience to celebrate the wins, right? And so the fact that we were able to get in a position and follow them and not, you know... The, with the wind dynamics and all the other things going on to not get sniffed out and spotted before we were able to get that close to be able to get that close. That was a huge win. And so I think that's one of the things that I do now and anything that I'm trying new where I'm not good at it is just to celebrate the small wins. And that was one for sure. Yeah. And it sounds like another, um, aspect of the, of that mindset that's really helpful is to, um, maintain nuance. Like whenever you're really hard on yourself or you, think that you're the king of the world there's no nuance in that perspective it's either i suck i deserve to die or it's i'm the best ever neither <laughs> of which are true but to be able to maintain some level of truth in both experiences um is what can allow you to learn those little lessons and move forward similar with you know what we've been talking about in regards to environmentalism or eating meat it's a nuanced perspective that you want to be able to maintain um and to be able to hold both of those perspectives after an experience of, you know, whether you want to take it as failure or success, um, will allow you to move forward with the most grace. 
Yeah. And I just think having that, the, the mindset of what can I learn? Like, what can I learn today? There's, there's so much to learn with this. Right. And I could hunt, you know, 52 times in a year, every weekend I could go hunting. And if I did that for a year, I would still have years worth of learning years more worth of learning to accomplish with that. Right. So I think understanding that if I just take the mindset of what can I learn from this experience every single day, that sets me up in a position to gain from it, right? And same thing goes for somebody, you know, politician or even somebody on this podcast that's saying something that you might disagree with. If you adopt the idea of what can I learn, that's going to position yourself in a different framework to be able to hear something that you can gravitate towards. You know, like nothing pisses people off more than me talking about the open relationship. And I don't even need to go down that rabbit hole. We talk about, I talk about it enough on the show. But my point is, there are people who have the what can I learn? And, and in a lot of times, this is non-prescriptive. I'm not saying this is for everyone. I'm not even saying that I'll do it the rest of my life. Who the fuck knows? We're trying it out. But there are key takeaways that you can learn from that will help you in a monogamous relationship if you have the mindset, what can I learn? Yeah. Yeah. And constantly putting yourself into new situations that uh, scare you or new situations where you are at the bottom of the totem pole allow you to look at it um, from a novel and new perspective. And then you can come back into your world where maybe you're more towards the top of the totem pole and your mindset won't be as ossified as it once was because you'll remember what it what it felt like to suck. Um, in uh, Civilized to Death, in Chris's book, he has this little example of um, how in a lot of hunter-gatherer um, societies, in order to um, kind of cut young people down to size who, who were developing these delusions of grandeur, when they would... Uh, go get, uh, when, when they would have a successful kill, it was common in a lot of these tribes to kind of heckle the hunter who made the kill and say like, oh, why did you bring me out here for that little bag of bones? If I'd known <laughs> it was this skinny, I wouldn't have made the whole trip out. Uh, another thing that they'll do is um, say that whoever's arrow, whoever uh, fletched the arrow um, of, of the hunter, um, that the kill goes to them. Right. Mm. But hunters in these in a lot of these tribes would trade arrows so frequently that it was very difficult for one person to be um, maintaining the the kill more of the time. Let me, let me try and articulate this better. Like it was basically just this way to randomize who got credit for the kill. And as a result, um, to cut people down so that they didn't um, get too big headed. And th- there's a line in, in his book where he said, you know, that um, one of these uh, researchers was asking the tribe, you know, so why do you do this? And he says, well, the, the problem is if someone gets too big headed, it always results in death. Damn. <laughs> I'm like, Damn, that's, that's, that's true, though, man. I mean, you see people that are, uh, they have their quests for power and they're willing to, um, you know, destroy personal relationships and destroy the world as a result. Like, it, it really comes, in my opinion, from some level of insanity and some level of um, real deep lack and real wound that needs to be healed. And I think that a lot of, man, I, I'm a big believer and big fan in a lot of the work that you do with psychedelics because I think that that's one of the most effective ways for people to heal that wound. 
yeah, it's effective in healing the wound. And it's also one of the most humbling experiences you can have. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I mean that in the best way, you know, it's not just, uh, it doesn't even have to be with the intention of, yeah, take so much that you have a panic attack or that it's really hard or bad or challenging trip. You know, like I've, I've experimented with some pretty heroic doses. And I think that was, those were all calculated and guided sessions. Um, but at the same time, like there is something where you get to the threshold where you're no longer in control and you're forced to surrender. And that lesson that keeps coming up, even in this last you know trip we did to Costa Rica, where it was like, I forgot how challenging ayahuasca is. Physically challenging, mentally, emotionally challenging. I experienced all those in the four nights we sat with the medicine. And it was just, it was mind blowing because it was like, fuck, it's only been two years. How could I forget this? How could I forget mm. how challenging this is to feel like I'm going to throw up for hours and not be able to, right? And sometimes I am able to. That's almost better because there's relief. But that's just like one element to doing something that is difficult that has huge payoff. Do you ever feel like psychedelics can get in the way of you getting shit done? Well, for sure. I mean, in in anything in life, we can lean on things to the point where they become a crutch. Right. And I, I only say that because I'm uh, from Santa Cruz, where there are a lot of people who um, are so process-driven, it's almost like they're their whole life is just focused on them talking about their own emotional process. <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, but you're not actually doing anything. Like yeah. I want to, I, I also want to see you like turn the paper in on time, so to speak, I'm yeah. like get the project across the line. Uh, and I've, I've benefited hugely from psychedelics as well, but I'm also in this time right now where I'm planning the motherfucker awards. And the idea of doing an ayahuasca ceremony right now is feels insane to me because it it just takes so much um but you're someone who you do get shit done and you're you're uh productive and you're also deeply in this world how do you maintain a balance between that yeah so that's the nuance right that's the nuance of of planning the the big trips you know i I think microdosing is is definitely a, a different topic but right now if i'm talking about the heroic dose of psilocybin or something like ayahuasca that's really gonna it's going to give you a lot, but there's also a cost to that, right? And and that cost is processing. That cost is spacing. It's spacing ahead of time and afterwards to really integrate whatever those lessons are so you do begin to embody that, whatever your teachings are, and make it the wisdom you wish to have in your life rather than just a really cool trip where you had the dope vision and this is what it told me. And, no, uh, you know, I actually haven't done that yet. And you're like, no, it, it doesn't mean anything if you don't change your life, right? But I think with that... That's where it comes to being able to tune in. That's where a lot of these other practices from the East go hand in hand. Breath work, meditation, even float tanks, things where you can find stillness, just a fucking a walk, you know, a walking contemplation. I'll do those two to four times a day around on it just mm. to get out in nature. It's a one mile walk. Sometimes I'm listening to Audible or podcast. Most of the time I've just got nothing in my ears and I'm listening to cars honk and birds chirp and whatever. But that gives me a little bit of space to get clear. And it, that's when the intuition kicks in. It's not when my mind, my monkey mind is racing and I'm trying to figure everything out. It's when I have stillness. And if I can reach stillness, then I can tap into that. Am I ready? Do I need to do this? Or is it me? You know, is there more work to be done before that? 
You know, and I think there are times in our lives where we get really busy with passion projects and things that are really important to us. And it could be different for you every time. If you do this motherfucker awards for the next 20 years, every year in December, there may be times where you're called to do the medicine because it's going to help you sort shit out ahead of time to actually improve upon the motherfucker awards or have balance, you know, to maybe there's something that you're forgetting about tending your own garden and making sure that you're doing fine in the the stress of putting together this giant project, right? And that's something psychedelics could give you. And I'm afraid I'm going to do ayahuasca and it's going to be like, why are you focusing on the negative, Kyle? Why why are you diving into the depths of your soul? I'm like, shut the fuck up, bitch. This is funny. I'm going to try and make it funny. This is great. No, but like I, I, I hear that like sometimes with, I mean, the motherfucker words is a dark, it's kind of like a gallows humor, you know, so you're diving into the darkness. And, and in some ways, like the more fucked up the issue, the funnier it can be. And I do have a fear sometimes around like, maybe I shouldn't take psychedelics a little bit around this. Like, you know, the porn star, Asa Akira, she's a, she's an Asian porn star. Many of your listeners will be familiar. Uh, she, she was on a podcast once and she was like, yeah, I'm kind of afraid of like psychedelics and to go more, or she's basically said like, I'm afraid of enlightenment because I really like what I'm doing right now. And I'm afraid that like, it will make me not want to do porn, uh, if I get too enlightened too quickly, which is, I think it's, I don't know, it's a fear that uh, a lot of comedians have, um, a lot of writers, they, they fear that they'll lose their edge of yeah. darkness um, if they become too enlightened. I don't I thought, know. I've thought about that with fighters too. Right. You know, like I, I would happily take anybody with me to the Amazon or Costa Rica once they retire, mm. but I'm, I'm not certain I would take people you know, certainly never in fight camp, but I mean, even, even like in between, you know, like they still have hopes of becoming champion and pushing themselves in that way. It might, I mean, for me, it just lost its importance. I was introduced to this stuff and I don't, I think the timing was perfect because I, 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 you know, I had this coach who'd take me and we'd do traditional sweat lodges and he introduced me to working with psilocybin in the proper way with intention and, and respect and, and then ayahuasca as well. And, this was the tail end of my fight career, but it just lacked its importance. It was like this, you know, fighting, whatever fight you have is the most important thing in your life. It doesn't matter if you're on a losing streak or a winning streak and you're headed towards the title. Each fight's the most important. And it just lacked importance at that point. It was like, it's, it's just not that important, you know? There's a quote from a, a football coach once. I forget exactly the one and I don't know if I actually agree with the quote, but it's interesting to ponder. He said, uh, to be a really good football coach, you need to be smart enough to understand the game and stupid enough to not realize how important, how un- or, and, and stupid enough to not realize how unimportant it all is. That's actually not a bad quote. Yeah. But I mean, you see that, you see a lot of coaches who, you know, their family lives are shit because they're so invested Right. And I know a lot of fighters like that. I know a lot of fighters that get divorced, you know, especially if they the fight career stops going the way that it once was. They stop being the, the, the star that they once were. And, and it's hard for them to transition into something else. I mean, shit, there's a lot of guys in MMA, Dan Sever, a lot of the a lot of the OGs that started it all with the UFC that are still fighting at 50, 60. You know, there's just not if you don't think about what you're going to do after that um, and you don't really have. I don't know if the education is the right word, but the passion to move into that space, you know, because you don't necessarily, anybody can acquire the education after the fact. Like 
I didn't go to school for health and wellness. I went to school for communications, which I guess is helping us right now. But, you know, in that, those were the things I was passionate about. I was passionate about reading Paul Check. I was passionate about reading about meditation and different things like that. And that's what led me here, you know. So I think anybody's capable of that without having to go back to college to mm. figure it out. But you have to want that. You have to desire that. And I think for a lot of people, if it's all they know, they don't want the big shift. Are there any uh, people in your life right now who you really look look up to in terms of um, their ability to make those shifts with grace um, and just people who you're kind of modeling your decision-making after? Well, I mean, Aubrey Marcus is my best friend and, and we've done, we've only known each other for like two and a half years, but we've done a lot of, a lot of deep dives with the plants. And that's, uh, as you know, incredibly bonding. Um, when, you shit your fa- when you shit your pants in front of your best friend, you know, I mean, you really, really creates a bond. We did a boga and I shit my pants in his bathroom once. Yeah. And I, was, I was like, well, we're fucking in the medicine. <laughs> Thankfully, I was intelligent enough to bring a, a spare change of pants. But, fist, fist bump, bro. We're close now. But um, he's a guy that I can talk to about anything. Absolutely anything. And, uh, you know, whether that's relationships or finance or building my own brand. I mean, he's done it all. He's done it all before. And then any, of course, any of the plant medicines, I mean, he's done literally everything I have and I've got more experience in some things. He's got way more experience than me and others. And so it's, it's really, it's a, it's an interesting person to have in my life. And he's introduced me to fucking amazing people like Ted Decker, who wrote the 49th mystic and rise of the mystics, incredible books on spirituality. Um, I've been able to spend a lot of time with Ted Porangi, Porangi, who's uh, he's on Spotify. He did the ayahuasca album for Aubrey when he did the documentary. Fantastic musician, a medicine man in his own right. You know, just a fucking beautiful human being. And uh, Doctor Dan Engel, the ayahuasca music is like, <laughs> and there's like some other instruments that uh-huh. come in. He like, brings in the dig. He brings it all in. Like it's it's fire. <laughs> and uh, uh, Doctor Dan Engel, who wrote the concussion repair manual, who's a dude who spent a year in the Amazon working with ayahuasca and he's a licensed psychotherapist here in the States, uh, who works a lot with, you know, MDMA for PTSD with, with the maps group and just fantastic humans. So like even outside, because I know him, he has planted seeds and, and given me so much outside of our relationship. And then when we have these big powwows where we all get together, there's a lot there, you know, and I think those are the, those are the conversations that I have that really expand my mind and my awareness. And of course, you know, if any one of them to says, you got to read this book, then I'm all about it. It's like, Oh, okay. I'm in, you know, like say no more, just bought it, you know? Yeah, man. The tertiary effects of being a podcaster are spectacular. The breadth and depth of the friend group that you develop. Um, this is a great example of it, uh, is, reason for everyone to start their own podcast um, because you you really can then call upon a lot of brilliant people who after a good podcast you can consider them friends and um, it really enriches your life um, and I you know the I said it before, but the motherfucker awards would not have happened without podcasting and just the people who have come in and, and allowed their help, you know, for example, even our, our set designer and our motion graphics designer, these people that are just, uh, donating huge amounts of time were podcast listeners. 
and they just hit us up and we're like, hey man, we're like-minded folks. And um, I think that it can be really helpful for people um, to just realize that they're not alone in the ways that they think. I think that it, you know there are people who feel like they're the oddball in their community and they don't have any deep friends that they can connect with. And um, you're not alone, peeps. <laughs> There's a bunch of weirdos out there just like you. Uh, and I commend you on being the conduit for so many people to um, be exposed to new information because you'll never fully know the impact that you have on people's lives, but uh, you're doing it. So You're doing it too, brother. Keep doing it, Kingsbury. All right, Any, la- any last w- words? We've been going for a while. Uh, I think we're good. I did want to ask you a similar question you asked me. So obviously, you know, getting in the podcast game, I know Chris Ryan was a big influence on that, and he's been a great teacher and friend of yours. What has he turned you on to that you weren't turned on to before? So it could be a book, it could be music, it could be just any anything that helped shape your life. How to tell a story. Mm. Chris Ryan, man, uh, <laughs> Chris told me once he was at um, he was doing this speaker series with all these these people, and uh, and he knows Wim Hof, the Ice Man, and. Uh, Chris was telling one of his great stories to this group of people and Wim came up and he he butted in and he goes, Chris, Chris can tell a fucking story. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Chris is one of those people who turns experiences into a narrative uh, in a really beautiful way. And, it's, and, it, and every story that he tells is true. It's just that he, he has this ability to take the bits of an experience and then turn it into a, a story and leave out the rest. So um, I think that what I'm learning a lot about from him is how to find those little moments that will be relatable uh, to other people and then how to leave out the rest. I think that, a, I mean, you know this as a, a communicator, a lot of what communicating is is... Um, not saying the unnecessary stuff. Mm-hmm. It's similar to like a, a good photo isn't so much necessarily about what's in the photo. It's what you leave out of it. Um, so I've been focusing a lot on my storytelling abilities. Um, and I actually do a newsletter now where every Friday I write a short story. This can just be a little experience or kind of wisdom that I'm noticing. A lot of times they're kind of funny and satirical. Does this go up on your website? On my or? website, okay. yeah, kyle.surf. You can, it's just a free um, weekly newsletter. And then a lot of times I include like a good documentaries I've been watching or other articles I've been reading. But it's I've really focused on that art. Um, and he's, he's someone that uh, has taught me how to, and is, and is, you know, continuing to, invest time in into me and um edits a lot of my work and uh and then as a result it's it's also kind of uh allowed me to get more into the comedy world because i think that comedians are some of the best storytellers there are as far as a, a group of people that are so precise about the words that they choose to use and what they choose to leave out um comedians are masters like you see you see dave chappelle up on Netflix, like, 
I mean, if, if you look at him just as a public speaker, he's one of the greatest out there. I don't know a ton of other just public speakers that are getting their own Netflix shows. Like it's really, it's just comedians. Um, so as a result, I've been doing something that scares the shit out of me. And I do open mics uh, here in Santa Cruz about four nights a week and get up there and four nights tell, a week tell jokes and yeah i um eat shit a lot of times you know and when a bad set goes bad it feels um similar to how i imagine being waterboarded would feel uh <laughs> but but every once in a while you know you get a good little joke and and i'm i'm realizing what uh, i'm realizing a lot both just in in how to tell a story with a good setup and a punchline and also just how people see me because I'm, I'm realizing like, oh, a lot of times a, like a joke won't work until I take care of the fact that like, yeah, okay, I get it. I look like a surfer. I look like a, you know, Santa Cruz athlete. Like I have one that I, I just thought I was like, I, I look like a guy whose father got him, to, got him into college by paying for the library. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, okay, cool. Like you get, like you look like this privileged dude. Um, I have one where I, I look like a dude who thinks that reflecting on life is flexing in the mirror. <laughs> like, so you, you have a few of those and like, I, I don't have any grand aspirations to be a professional comedian or anything, but I don't think I would have really recognized the power of a good story without Chris Ryan. Fuck yeah, brother. Well, you mentioned Kyle.surf. Where can people find you online? Uh, yeah. Kyle.surf, not.com uh, is my website and my podcast is the Kyle Tierman show and you, sir at Kingsboo on Instagram and Twitter and kingsboo.com. I do a monthly newsletter. Uh, also talking about the books I'm reading, any documentaries I've seen. Um, I, I think I will start writing a bit more of the stories that are going on. Mostly I've just been laying out the things that I'm into. Uh, the latest newsletter, the welcome letter. So everybody who signs up will get the welcome letter. I talk about this Stamets protocol for microdosing for a month straight, the brain reset. So I dive into it uh, there. And um, Wait. I, I, I want to get this brain reset from you because I'm okay. actually going to do, uh, I want to do a microdose. Uh, I don't think anyone would mind saying, I'm going to do a housemate. Uh, we're like all my housemates here. We're all going to microdose for a month and then like come and see what all the effects would be. Oh, perfect. So, so what do you recommend so, as far as the protocol? What he says is a hundred milligrams of psilocybin. And this is like your standard. It's not a penis enemy. hundred milligrams. Um, at least 500 milligrams, but I'm probably going to take closer to 1,500 milligrams of lion's mane and then um, about a gram to two grams of cordyceps sinensis. So lion's mane has the ability to affect the neuronal pathways in the brain, increase neuroplasticity and different connections. Also really good for the entire nervous system, psilocybin as well. And then cordyceps is really good for enhancing the mitochondria and ATP production. And we know that the two largest organs in the body that contain the most amount of mitochondria are the brain and the heart. So that's like the triple hit whammy. And then you add in niacin between 100 milligrams and 1,000 milligrams. That's a pretty wide range. And that's where you get the flush. So the idea behind that is the flush, you'll get like itchy red skin. It's kind of uncomfortable, but um, that's going to push all the medicines out in the periphery of the body. So you'll get even... uh, further release of that extending out into all of the nerves within the body and uh you can run that five days on two days off and you can do it indefinitely but he says you know a minimum of 30 days to get the brain reset so i'll be running that and uh i'll be reporting back i'm I'm excited well for sure this microdose felt great (laughs) (laughs) hell yeah brother um so fun man 
Let's yeah. do it more. Yeah, you got it, brother. Thanks for having me. That's our show. I'm going to play out the song by the great apes called The Mill. These guys listened to the podcast and they sent me some music. So if you're a musician, send me some music and I'd love to play it. I'll give your band credit in the show notes below. You can email it to info at kyle.surf. Don't forget, the Motherfucker Awards tickets are now on sale. Go to motherfuckerawards.com and get yours before they sell out. I also do the weekly newsletter. Don't forget, uh, head over to kyle.surf if you want to get some more short stories from moi. And hit up Kyle Kingsbury on Instagram. Um, He's taken the time to sit down with me, and if you enjoyed some of the points that he made, uh, just hit him up. A quick comment on Instagram really does mean a lot to my my guests, um, and it matters. I'm telling you. So just take those those 10 seconds and uh, put some love out into the world because I appreciate you all listening to this show and I love you all. So I'll see you soon. Have a great day.